Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and I have a super special guest with us today um, who is not from the veterinary world, so it's a nice treat, um, and I'm really, really excited that he's taken the time to spend uh, with us this morning. Steve Magnus, welcome to Central Line. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. So, uh, Steve, you are... I, I'm super familiar with your work because I've been listening to you on podcasts and reading your books um, for quite a while now, but I know a lot of the veterinary audience probably isn't quite as familiar, especially if they're not um, into the sports. So <laughs> would you mind just giving us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in sport, like you mentioned, and particular running. I grew up as a uh, very successful young long distance runner. Um, and then translated that into running in college and a little bit after. And then when I was forced to move on to the real world, I, I got into the world of coaching and just helping people be, you know, do better at whatever they're, they're uh, pursuing. So initially that was all in sport and all in running, coaching runners. But since then, in the past, I don't know, decade, I've expanded out to hopefully help others perform in whatever they're doing and whatever avenue they're taking. Because what I believe is performance is performance. It doesn't matter if we're getting ready to do something in the office space or lining up for the marathon. A lot of the skills translate. I love that so much because I've I've noticed that in my own life. And um, while I never ran a 401 mile. (laughs) Uh, If I run an eight minute mile is a good day. But um, just the thought of being able to pick something up new as an adult, um, and learn so much that I didn't know I was capable of through running and fitness. um, It's really just done wonders for my confidence in other areas in life. And um, I just really I'm super passionate about that. So that's one of the reasons I love your book so much. Um, So Steve, it, you're here because um, you just uh, had a new book come out, and uh, it's great. I was so excited. Um, I pre-ordered it, and I was so excited when it arrived because it came with an email from you <laughs> that said, hey, if you have a podcast, let me know. <laughs> and so instantly, I like put the book down and emailed you, and I'm so excited that you're here. Um, the book is called Do Hard Things, and the subtitle is uh, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. And this is just so intriguing to me. Can you just give us just a brief nutshell um, version of why you wrote this book? Yeah, absolutely. So to me, I wrote it, again, maybe starting from the sport background of, of sport, especially running, is all about handling difficult moments and difficult situations, essentially wrestling with the doubt, the insecurities, that little voice in your head that maybe tells you to slow down or stop. And what I quickly realized is those those same doubts and insecurities, like they weren't specific to sport. They're part of the human condition. Like we all wrestle with those things. And when I looked at, okay, how do we navigate this? How do we deal with this? A lot of the, the models or the teaching were, were a little what I'd call old school. 
in the yeah. sense that it just told us like, oh, just put your head down and, you know, grind through it and get through the work and that's how you accomplish everything. And that to me is like giving someone a hammer and saying, you know, here's your hammer, fix everything with it. And yeah. that that just isn't realistic. So hopefully, you know, this book gets across a new model, which is like, hey, we can develop a wide array of tools to be able to, you know, develop some resilience and get through difficult moments or difficult um, pursuits in your life. Yeah, uh, and so applicable to veterinary medicine, as we'll talk about in a little bit. But speaking of vet med, I um, is this your vet first veterinary podcast? <laughs> it is. You. Woo-hoo! This, this is very different from the others, but I, I, I'm excited. So uh, as I told you in emails, uh, my wife and I are are pet people. We have a dog, and then we actually have two sugar gliders. So they're kind really? of really. Yeah, our exotic pet, but we love animals. So, well, that's that's kind of brave of you. Like, I'm a little bit scared of the very tinies. Like, I I've stuck to cat and dogs in practice, and so um, I the sugar gliders were well, they they weren't always pets where I was living, but um, yeah, they're a little bit scary to me. So <laughs> that you're braver than I am, um, and I won't touch a bird. Like, I'm just not touching a bird ever because I'm afraid it's gonna die if I touch it. Um, oh, gosh. But uh, yeah, I, I love the story about how your wife found Willie in a tire on a run. Um, I love that because that's so characteristic of how so many vets and vet professionals found their pets too. It's just like a bad situation at the right time. Yeah, exactly. You know, to uh, fill in the listeners is uh, my wife found our dog. He was uh, in a tire on the side of the road on a dirt road, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere in Texas. And you know, he was only a couple months old and she picked him up and said, hey, I'm going to she she actually tried to, you know, figure out and get help, but couldn't. So she took him in and, you know, uh, initially he had a lot of worms and all those kind of nasty things. So we were very fortunate to, uh, to have a vet take care of him. And now, gosh, seven years later, he's He's a healthy, happy dog who still has a little bit of that wild streak in him. So yeah, uh, yeah, got, it got quite the personality. Yeah, I've heard you talk about him on on your podcast before, um, and I I love the sort of attachment and just the spirit of your love for him that I heard in those conversations. Um, you know, I think we all as as vet people can relate to just there's something that you can't get anywhere else um, that you can get from from your pets and especially dogs there's just a different kind of love I think um, but I was just wondering like I know you know you're you're doing a whole bunch of podcasts right now to promote your book and um, you're very used to podcasting anyway it's like just another day for you but like, why did you say yes to doing a vet podcast? Do you have a certain attachment to the vet community? Do you know anything about like what's what kinds of challenges we're facing? Uh, I do to a degree. I've, I, as I said, I've always been an animal person, a dog person as as well. And then growing up, so our vet uh, when I was a when I was a runner in high school. Our vet was like the first hardcore runner I think I knew who was like ah. an adult. So he I would love li- that. <laughs> yeah. So he would literally come to all you know, a lot of my cross country and track meets 
and you know he was a big influence on on me as a runner um so i've always you know and we'd we'd have conversations obviously on running but also like what it entails to be a vet and the challenges behind that and also i remember conversations on like how his daily run kind of cleared his mind and helped him develop some of the skills that allowed him to kind of get through the challenges that he was going through so although i'm not intimately you know familiar with it i you know it's uh, animals have always been a big part of my life and i've always had a lot of respect for the uh the people who do the best and help us take care of them i love that yeah thank you well thank you for saying yes um this is a real treat and before we go on to talk about the book and the concepts in it i have one i like to ask a personal question at the beginning because i feel like we always learn a lot about each other when we ask these kinds of questions and so i actually was curious to know what kind of dog you think you would be (laughs) what kind of dog would i oh gosh Um, i have some thoughts for what you might answer but i'm very curious to hear what you'll say I, you know, that's a good question. I have no idea. I, you know, what I'm going to give is, uh, I'll give the like cop out answer is I would probably be some random combination of mutt. Yeah. Because, because it's like my interests are so contrasting in the sense that I love sport and all that stuff. But deep down inside, I'm like this hardcore nerd. Mm-hmm. So it's like this contrast of like loving all sport, but also just like geeking out in the science and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah. And I, I love exercise, obviously. So I'd, I'd be one of those dogs with way too much energy that needs way too many walks. My money was on, you were going to say like a shelter mutt where you'd like <laughs> yeah. everyone would look and guess, you know, and not be able to know for sure. Or you were going to say you were a healer mix. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's awesome. So uh, I'm a mutt too. So it's, I am a fan. Um, well, let's, let's get into it. Uh, this book. So I have to say this book is not what I expected when I saw the cover. You know, I probably you get this a lot. I thought it was going to be sort of a like um, discipline, you know, is your freedom, Jocko Willink type, um, you know, book about toughness. And um, I've long been a fan of the idea of something I heard. Actually, it was Joe DeSena, the Spartan founder, um, who I recently heard on another podcast. And he was like the opposite of everything that was in this book when he was on that podcast. Um, So we won't get into that. But he talks about this thing called obstacle immunity, where, you know, you choose to do hard things, and you push through them. And then you learn something about yourself that helps you push through things that you can't choose that are tough. Um, And Jocko Willink, you know, has this sort of um, this very military view of discipline is your freedom. And, you know, you get up at 4 a.m. and you run when your feet hurt. And that gives you the power to get through your day without complaining. And yet I still burned out in vet med, even though I was running marathons with burning feet in a flood. You know, I could do that. No problem. And I would do it again. And I still didn't want to be in the clinic anymore. And I think that's pretty common. And I was just wondering what you think about that, whether those concepts are being phased out now. Are we proving them wrong or can they coexist with what you talk about in the book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So what I would say is twofold is there's a lot of nuance around here. And those kind of methods that Jocko and others espouse, like they have, I think they have their place 
and they can be incredibly you know important tools to utilize but i think we make the mistake when we say this is like this applies to everything then this is you know it there are times you know as you know as a runner where you're just gonna have to be like this sucks i'm gonna put my head down and i'm just gonna survive and get through this and that's a legitimate strategy and something that we have to do. But that doesn't always apply to other aspects of our life. And often it can backfire. And I'll give you the example. If you feel burned out, like you said, as, as a vet med, then no amount of putting your head down and trying to push through is going to help. In fact, it's going to backfire because the thing you are trying to double down on is the thing that is leading to and contributing to that burnout. So you have to take a, a, a different approach. And I think that's where I'm arguing is that so much of the dialogue here around is that like just push through, do very difficult things. And I'm saying, hey, that's important. I mean, it's the title of the book, mm-hmm. but the book's title is, is hopefully there, as you notice, to draw you in and then to say, hey, that's important. We need to do challenging things. But also, like, consider that there's a bunch of different other methods and ways to get through things as well as you're doing the difficult thing. Yeah. And, and so what are some of those ways? Like you, you have, there was a quote I really liked um, towards the beginning of the book. You said, give people a choice and let them train hopefulness. I just love that idea. I love the idea of training hopefulness because I feel like a lot of times in society now, especially like on social media, we're training sort of a learned helplessness. Um, and I was curious to hear what what you meant by that. What does it mean to train hopefulness? Yeah, so essentially it's the power of giving people a choice and allowing them to have autonomy and choose. And when we do that, not surprisingly, good things can happen. And what often what we do, and this actually comes out of research way back, um, in the learned helpfulness uh, community where they, they initially looked at dogs and, and um, essentially not giving dogs a choice and that trained help, helplessness is what they thought. But what they really realized over, you know, in reevaluating that research is that it's not about helplessness. It's about giving people the choice so that you can train this hopefulness and train this hopeful muscle. Which to me is simply like whenever we're going through uncomfortable things or challenging times, it often feels like we're trapped. Mm-hmm. And when we feel like we're trapped, we almost default towards apathy. And then we get scolded and we say, like, why aren't you motivated? Why aren't you disciplined? Why aren't you doing these things? But the reality is when we feel trapped, when we feel like apathy is the only answer, when we don't have a path forward, then it's natural and it's human to default to that self-protection. So instead, what do we do? When we're in those difficult moments, we look for the we look for small places where we can flex that hopeful muscle, which means like having a choice and having a voice and like seeing that even in the difficult moments we can control some aspect of this. And if we can do that, we're going to be in a better place. And you know, not to bring it to athletics, but they are really good at finding ways to assert control even under uncertain uh, moments. One of the ways you see it often in professional sports is all those crazy routines that you see athletes do, like, you know, the professional tennis players, 
like Raphael and Nadal who like set up their water bottles in a specific, you know, order and go through the same routine. Why do they do that? It's simple. They're asserting some sort of control and making the choice to do these things in an environment where a lot of times it's, you know, a lot of luck and a lot of uncertainty. So just those small moments give us wrestle back that control so that we can train that hopeful muscle. You know, that's making me, that's looking at, we have this thing in vet med where like we have these pens we really like, you know? And so if you like steal someone's pen in the clinic, it's like a mortal sin, right? Cause you, that's your lucky pen or it's your good pen. Like I'm holding on to that pen till it dies. And I'm starting to see that in a new light now. <laughs> it's like, no matter what happens today, I'm keeping my pen, you know? Um, and I used to come to clinic to the clinic with like this massive bag of snacks and I do get hangry. I'm a very hangry person. So like I have to eat regularly and I was constantly eating something, but I also feel like that was a way to control my environment a little bit when you don't know what's going to walk in the door or how your day is going to go, but I know I have snacks. <laughs> I, I, I love it. And, and that's, yeah. actually, that's actually what it all is, is about is like yeah. when our environment feels uncertain and uncontrollable, we just default to threat and protect mode. Yeah. So sometimes the smallest things where it's like, no matter how my day is, like I've got my bag of snacks yeah. and I can always go back to my bag of snacks like that again. And there's fascinating neuroscience behind this. There's that almost like decreases that alarm, makes us feel mm -hmm. a little bit more secure. And when we feel secure, we can then approach even difficult moments out of a place of like curiosity and freedom versus like, oh, I have to do this, or oh, I'm forced to do this, and I have no control and no say, this is just getting dumped upon me. And, and that's, you know, that's not a good place to perform out of. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, you know, I was thinking a lot about the culture of vet med um, while I was reading your book, because I was trying to think, you know, do we have a traditional culture of toughness where it's like, keep a stiff upper lip, you know, put your head down, just grind it out. Or do we have a culture where it's okay to make decisions for yourself? And, you know, and resilience is seen slightly differently. And, and I think it, it's obviously very practice dependent, like where you practice is going to be different and how your managers are. But Coming through school, I think it is very clear that we're supposed to just be like traditionally tough. You know, we don't get any sleep and we're working, we're on call and we're working 14, 16 hours in the clinic and trying to learn things and, you know, having to shout out answers on rounds and otherwise we'll feel stupid. And this is all with the goal of getting out so you can do it for real. <laughs> and um, I remember at my first job, I was working at a really good clinic. Um, it was an AHA certified, AHA accredited clinic. And um, it was a very, um, you know, it was full of technicians who knew what they were doing and other doctors to support me on the surface, very supportive environment. Um, and I remember one of the first really busy days that we had there and I was feeling just underwater and I probably had like two cases, but I was a brand new vet, so I didn't know what to do. And I just felt completely overwhelmed. And I turned to one of the technicians and I said, I am completely overwhelmed. And she looked at me and she said, okay, hot tip, don't say that out loud to us. Mm. And I was like, oh. And it was years before I felt comfortable saying it again. And even though I was overwhelmed many times during those years, and yet since I started saying it again, 
I feel like all the good things in life, whether career or personal life, have happened to me because I was able to say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm feeling vulnerable, I need to say what is really happening inside my head. And um, that makes me really sad because I'm just thinking about all the other new vets that don't say it. Exactly. No, I mean, thanks for sharing that story because I think it's important to talk about it because, and the psychology is very clear on this. If we just keep ignoring, suppressing, restraining, it just comes back three or four, you know, fold greater. And that's what often happens is we get taught like, oh, don't say I'm overwhelmed. Don't, you know, acknowledge any of this stuff. And that's essentially saying, you know, don't acknowledge reality because in in very stressful professions like vet med, like that's going to be the case sometimes. Yeah. And if you just deny it, you're essentially, your brain is essentially like looking out at the world and being like, what do you mean we're not stressed or overwhelmed? Like, I see you doing, like, going crazy and there, our stress hormones are through the roof and all this stuff. Like, what? And, like, that uncertainty and that, like, not uh, inability to make sense of kind of the world it's occupying just leads to chaos. And I think yeah. the more, that's why it's important to kind of flip the script and, and talk about it and acknowledge it. And it's not a sign of weakness. It's just a sign of like difficult situations. And, yeah. it, you know, where my mind goes to this is actually when I was talking to a, a good friend who's, you know, um, in the military and, and, and going through special forces right now, he told me he was essentially like, Steve, if I went into like, you know, whatever survive, got, I, I got dropped in the woods and got told to survive, which is what happens with them in their training. You know, do you think it's best if I just say, oh, man, this is a piece of cake. This is no problem. I'm not going to, uh, you know, acknowledge the craziness. <laughs> That'll take care of it. <laughs> yeah. No. It's like I have to acknowledge the reality that like, oh, crap, I'm in this very difficult moment. Like, this is going to be stressful, and like, okay, what do I need to do to get through this stress? Don't just, like, dismiss it. It's real. So I think the same as the case for the rest of us is, like, often we're taught, like, don't acknowledge it, don't dismiss it. But the only way we can get through things often is to acknowledge the reality of the situation and then figure out, okay, how do I keep my head on straight and, like, manage and get through this so that, you know, hopefully it'll be okay. And that's a, it's an interesting comparison because on the one hand, like I've never been dropped in the woods and had to survive. But on the other hand, like being a brand new vet, especially I would imagine I didn't do an internship after school, but in veterinary medicine, internships are optional. So you can go and do like a year of, of a rotating internship and go through like surgery and emergency and stuff like that. And usually the interns, you know, work a bazillion hours a week and they get paid nothing and they're basically living at the clinic and they're stuck on overnights a lot when they work the, the emergency, um, shifts and sometimes they're just alone and so you might have these brand new grads that are like thrown into the mix on an overnight with very little support even though they know the least of any of the doctors in that hospital and um that terrified me like that probably was the main reason i didn't do an internship even though you learn a lot that way because i just couldn't see that being a situation where i would do well and um it's like a survive or quit kind of situation is what it sounds like to me um at least for someone like me who's not an adrenaline junkie in any way (laughs) and um i just wonder you know i think a lot of vets 
I can't speak for technicians, but I would imagine the same thing for them. When you get out of school, you feel like you have to kind of fake it till you make it because you're worried if you don't project an air of confidence, even if you're feeling anything but, that people aren't going to trust you and you're not going to be able to grow and and do your job because people will just sort of steer clear of you because they'll think you're not competent. Um, so how would you suggest navigating those feelings? Like when you're new and you're like, if I show my weakness, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do anything or learn. Yeah, that's a, it's a tricky subject. And it's a tricky thing that a lot of people face, um, especially when you're new in a profession. I would, I would say a couple different things. First, I'm going to quote a study that looked at uh, entrepreneurs and investors and faking it versus not, essentially. And <laughs> what they found is that like the fake it till you make it would fool the investors to give them money but only the lower level investors who weren't very good at their job, okay? The people yeah. who had success and like had higher rates of success in their investing job, the fake it till you make it didn't, didn't fool them. Like it, it didn't fool them and it didn't help the people who were faking it. So to, to kind of, you know, the, the lesson I get from that, and I think it applies to others, is that like faking it works on easy things or fools people who really don't know what they're doing. The people who have been in the trenches and who understand maybe the difficulty of the job, not always, but often understand that like, yeah, like this is a really difficult moment and you're not going to have full confidence in yourself or in this spot. And I'm not asking you to. And that's just kind of real and how it is. So number one is keep that in mind. The second part of it is I think it's, lowering the bar when you're in this situations because if you're just you know if you're just out of school and you're just like interning no one expects you to have everything figured out neither should you what you should go back to is the things that you have have gone through in class that you have been prepared for that you have been mentored and taught on those are the things you should you know develop confidence in and like have confidence that you know what to do in these situations you've been trained on and go there. If you get presented with a new or different situation, which will inevitably happen, it's not that you should have confidence on like, oh, I can solve everything. I'm just going to act like I do. No, have confidence in the things that you're secure in. And then the things that you don't like, you know, be curious about and ask for help when you need, need it. That's and the big thing. Asking for help isn't a sign. Don't think it as a sign of, I don't know. Approach it from a sign of curiosity of, hey, I need to learn how to do this because I want to be the best I can at my job and acting like I know how to do it when I really don't. That means I'm never going to learn the, the correct procedure or the correct standards or what have you. And if you have someone who's more experienced who have the, has this knowledge, like approach to them and embrace it in that frame. And, you know, most of the time they're going to come at you as like, OK, this person wants to learn, wants to develop, wants to be the best, best bet med that they can. So I'm going to mentor them and help them out. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was thinking while you were saying that about you know, bosses in this field, um, sort of more experienced veterinarians who 
think about when they were solo veterinarian in their first practice, you know, and vets would, you know, they lived in the clinic, you know, and people would come knocking at all hours and there were no emergency clinics to take the pets to. So you had to do it or the pet was going to die. You know, okay, first of all, when there's no options, it's a little bit easier to tackle it because you know it's you or nothing. Um, It's a little bit harder when you know that someone down the street could do it because they've done it a million times and you're like, I have no idea what how to even start here. And, um, and then they would muscle through that surgery in the middle of the night, and everything worked out, you know, and I just think about how many of them probably did that, and how few of them probably did it the right way. And I'm making quotes, you know, nobody knows how to do a surgery perfectly the first time with no supervision the right way. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we should do now in our situations. Um, and so I, I, you had another, um, there was another quote from the book I wanted to bring up. It was, um, toughness is having the space to make the right choice under discomfort. Okay. First of all, I love that, um, that idea because decisions are power. I think when you're a doctor, especially, um, but a lot of us do that. Like a lot of veterinarians and vet techs make decisions all day when we're uncomfortable, but they're for other people and animals. They're like, what should I do with this pet? What should I say to this client? What medicine should I prescribe here? Should we go to surgery? Should I take another x-ray first? How do we turn that decision-making on ourselves when we're so stuck in making decisions for other people? Oh man, that's a really good and difficult question to answer. I think it's, I think you're right. Um, so he, here's here's what I would say there is that the reason that you're probably comfortable making decisions for other people is A, it's your job, and then B, there's just enough almost natural space that allows you to be that objective person to like navigate that difficult moment because like you are A, the expert, but you're also thinking about it, how can I help, you know, this other person's dog, cat, whatever have you. It's almost like, you know, it's easier to give advice to a friend than it is to give ourselves advice and follow it. Oh my gosh, that's so true. (laughs) Right? So when it comes to your own decisions on things that maybe aren't others, but your own choices, own decisions, like what I would ask is like, well, or what I would suggest is go to the place where you know how to make decisions, which is, create some space and distance where you're almost imagining or thinking about, okay, what would I tell it? What would I tell a person if they walked into the, the store? What would I tell my neighbor, or my friend on how to handle this situation? What you're doing is you're creating that space because you're taking it away from like this, Hey, it's me and me alone to, okay, how would I approach this? The other thing that sounds a little bit weird, but research tells us actually works is, when you're in that moment trying to make that decision for yourself is change the way that how you talk to yourself. So often our inner dialogue is like, okay, I could do this or I can do this or I should do this. And it's all kind of I, me focused, which is very, again, not much space there. We're thinking for ourselves. If we change that to second or third person, you know, you could do this or Katie or Steve could do that. Like 
research clearly shows lots of great uh, psychology research, uh, particularly from Ethan Cross out of the University of Michigan, that shows that when we just change our simple self-talk, we create a little bit of that space and that distance, which what is what happens there? It takes that emotional content that's associated with that difficult moment and it decreases it just enough so that instead of intertwined with our decision, it it almost like alleviates it just a little bit so we can have a little perspective and hopefully get to that right decision or take or that thoughtful decision more so than when it just feels like, oh my gosh, it's just me making this choice and my emotions and are all intertwined and, and tied up with it. I remember reading about that in the book about creating that distance. And um, I'm just picturing this could have become a thing. Like when I was working in the clinic and I was working with a great team at my last job and um, they knew me really well, but uh, I can just picture me saying to them, okay, so sometimes I might stop and say, should Katie send this text message? Should Katie actually say that to the client? And then you can't think I'm nuts because, <laughs> because I'm actually just trying to create space for me to make good decisions for myself. And I could see that becoming a thing. Like, I really think that would be, um, you can almost make it a little bit fun if you're in a clinic environment and you're trying to make hard decisions for yourself. Like, should Katie take a break and have some lunch? I think Katie should do that. The answer is yes. The answer is Katie should always have lunch. Otherwise, Katie's going to lose her job. Um, but I, I love that. Love it. Um, okay, so can somebody be tough and a quitter? Absolutely. And the, the example I, you know, so whenever we, it, it comes back to choices. So continuing to persist on in an activity is a choice. And what you're doing there is you're saying this thing means enough to me and has enough importance where I'm going to choose to keep doing it. At the same time, quitting is also a choice. And often we frame it as a negative on like, oh gosh, you can handle it. You know, you're not tough enough, etc. But all it is is saying sometimes acknowledging that your priorities have changed, that this thing you're persisting on maybe isn't as important as you think and maybe your time attention is better you know spent over on this other thing over here so you should quit so you have the space to pursue it and actually research shows us that in fact those who are you know score higher on different scales of of toughness often are better at what uh is called like goal shifting and goal re-engagement which is what is goal shifting except for quitting one thing and then applying your effort to something else. And what yeah. we often see is that people who, who think maybe they're, they're quote unquote tough, they stay too long in persistence mode and miss out on opportunities that you know are there but they're kind of doggedly pursuing them and you know the the story i like to tell that really kind of centered this for me in my head is when i was talking to uh climbers who climb like mountains like mount everest and stuff and they'd be like steve like the easy decision is always to persist why because you just spent the last year of your life training and preparing to make it to the summit but the sometimes hard and smart and tough decision 
is to be like, oh man, the summit is is there. I could probably make it, but I don't have the energy to make it all the way back down. So this is probably risking my life. So I should quit, even though the goal, the quote unquote goal is right there. So I like to think of quitting in the same frame is that sometimes it's the wise, tough decision and we shouldn't think negatively about it if it allows you to, you know, again, free yourself up to do what other things that might have more meaning or, or importance at this moment. I, I hear a lot of veterinary professionals in um, social media groups talk about quitting and they say, you know, I have a ton of loans. I mean, a veterinary education is so expensive and we don't get paid enough to pay it back, you know, and, and people can be in debt for their entire careers and they'll feel trapped or they'll be in a situation where, you know, they have to live in a certain place and they're working at a clinic that they don't fit well with the culture or the management and they feel stuck and they'll say, you know, I wish I could do anything else, but I don't know how to leave. This is who I always wanted to be. And um, I just think about how we could change that narrative. You know, um, you were talking about control before and how when people don't have any control, they feel they, they sort of become apathetic and then things take this downward spiral. And it's like, you, how do you get it back after that? And um, I was just wondering how much of that lack of control might might play a role in all of those those situations where people feel like they just want to give it up and walk away absolutely that's you know it's an unfortunate situation but it is completely real and especially from a financial side as well is often like that that barrier makes us feel like we have no choice. And the research shows as well is that that tends to shift our motivation. So we start, you know, we get in vet because we love it. We enjoy it. Something tied it uh, mm-hmm. us to it. Like we say, okay, this is something that I love to pursue. So it's very uh, an intrinsic internal motivation. But if we feel trapped, what happens is it almost pushes us to our basic kind of necessities which pushes us more to that external motivation, which can be very helpful for surviving in short situations. But that external extrinsic motivation is like, it's like lighter fluid. It's like a big fire, but it burns out quickly. Um, it doesn't sustain over the long haul. So absolutely, I think that that, that control issue is, is a big thing. So to me, and the other thing that I'd say as well is that the environment around us plays a big deal in whether we can be quote unquote tough or not. We yeah. often think of it as this individual characteristic, but there's all sorts of research from sport to business to life that shows that if our environment provides us a place where uh, we feel like we belong, where we feel like we can make progress and grow and that we feel like we have that sense of control or autonomy, good things will happen. If we take away all, all three of those things, like our motivation goes plummets. We're not going to be able to handle challenging things. So to me, it's, it's how do you try to set up your environment? And I get we don't have control over everything, but how do you set up your environment to fulfill those three basic things in the best way that you can. And even if that means on like small things, I'm reminded of uh, the Stanford neurobiologist who on that middle part, that, that sense of progress and growth and competency, 
he said that often we try and get it from our workplace all the time and that that's fine but sometimes our work won't provide that yeah so make sure you have that sense of competency somewhere in your life and the example he gave is if your work isn't giving it, but you're the star on the the you know the company softball game at the picnic. Well, that can give you a little bit of competency for a little bit to like help you get through things. So look for those small moments where you can be, say, "Hey, maybe I'm not making progress in the main thing, but I'm making progress over here. Maybe I don't have belonging in my entire you know workplace." But I have this these connections to maybe you know the the two or three people I work with the most, and I'm gonna try and create that belonging and cohesion, even if I don't have it in the greater you know organization. That's such good advice, and I think also um, ties back to what we were talking about early on, where um, you know you were talking about sort of the the side of you that loves athletics and the side of you that is a nerd and loves to geek out about data. And I would say that a lot of us are like that too. You know, we're very data oriented science people want evidence for things. And yet um, we're also very driven in the way that many athletes are very driven and we're used to succeeding because you have to succeed a lot to get into vet school and to be a good vet or tech and, um, and succeed in those stressful environments. And so um, I, I, sometimes wonder, I, I think a lot of us maybe sell ourselves a little short because we don't tackle outside pursuits with the same drive and passion that we tackle our careers with. And because we think we don't have time or we're too busy or we don't want to spend any money to do it. And yet the gains that we'll get from those other pursuits might help our careers become more sustainable in the long run, because that definitely happened with me. Uh, yes, exactly. So what happens is if your sense of meaning, purpose, progress, success is only in a narrow field, mm-hmm. what, what are you doing? You're making yourself incredibly fragile. Yeah. It's, it's no different than the athlete who maybe entire identity is tied around, do I win this race or not? Well, if they don't win, they themselves, their sense of self is going to be crushed. So instead, we need to have, and I get the time constraints and all that stuff, but even on a small scale, we need to diversify our sources of meaning, purpose, progress, all of those things. And it can be something very simple. You know, I'll I'll give myself an example. Like, as as a writer, it can be very you know, stressful when a book comes out because you're like, okay, I've spent the last three plus years working on this. And now, you know, over a couple of weeks, like whether people <laughs> like it or not, will determine, like, I cannot whether, imagine that. <laughs> you know, and it's not only, it's almost like auditioning for your job every yeah. couple of years, because like your, your ability to do the next book is dependent on how this one does. Yeah. So if I lived in that space the whole time, I drive myself nuts. Yeah. So I have other things like, you know, helping runners, coaching, even my own pursuits of, you know, no matter what I'm doing, I'm going out for a run or exercising and and feeling like, okay, you know, even if the day goes bad, I still got my hour run in. And that's something like that's something to feel good about. Yeah. So like 
having those is what I would say is like, again, look for those small things that you can do consistently that bring a little bit more of that into your life. Um, and that can go a long way for helping you deal with the, the kind of struggles of, of your workplace. Yeah, you, you talked about um, something in the book called affective inertia, um, which basically then, from what I understand, you have like a stressful event happen to you, but the stressful event kind of reverberates and eventually you're responding to those reverberations and not the event itself. And you said that um, when you have a sense of control um, in your environment, which many of us, I think, feel like we don't have a lot of control over what's happening, at least in the day-to-day vet clinic type situation. Um, when you don't have that control, then your your kind of alarm bells become more easily triggered. And so I could see this being like a compounding thing where you don't have a sense of control and your alarm bells are like ready to go off all the time. Um, and then when they go off, they reverb and you can't get over it. And you're constantly just feeling those reverberations and thinking like, my life is really hard and I don't know what to do and I'm stuck here. Yeah, that, it, that feels it, very familiar to me in like a kind of a tender way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's a very, again, it's, it feels familiar because it's part of the human condition. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at it, what happens often is we get stuck in these loops and whenever those reverbs happen, what we're doing is we're just reinforcing that stress and reinforcing mm-hmm. that, oh, this is something that I, sh- I don't have control over. This is something that I should be stressful over. And yeah. we all experience this, right? I mean, uh, all you have to do is think about that moment that maybe went wrong where you said, oh, I, you know, I maybe let someone down or made the wrong decision or what have you. And then you spend the next it, it pops up into your head for hours and days and then you're about to go to sleep and that thought pops in your head and you feel the tension and stress on you. Yeah. So, so that's why I think it's really important to figure out, okay, for myself, what are my strategies and tools to be able to like quiet that down? What is my process to be able to say, you know what, this negative thing happened. It does suck. I get it. I experienced the stress, but like, how do I process that and then kind of be able to let it go for, for a bit? And again, there's no easy way to do it, but what the research in psychology is clearly shows us is that avoiding it doesn't help. No. So <laughs> like, you've got to deal with it and, and process it in your own way. And sometimes that's coming ter- to terms with it. Other times it's, it's as simple as, you know, one of the best ways we can deal with it and process it is talking to a good friend or colleague about it. Because then we get to almost offload a little bit of the problem where it's like, oh, like we've, we've, we've dealt with it with someone else. They've helped us like frame it and then put it in the right perspective. I don't need to carry this baggage, you know, for the rest of the day or for days or weeks on it. Yeah, especially when those feelings are shame, like you said, about letting someone down or making the wrong decision, which I lived in constant fear of for 12 years. And I didn't realize how much that had amped up my level of anxiety was just the fear of making the wrong call all the time. 
I wasn't even thinking about it. It was just there. And I think so many of us just live in that gray space of like, okay, today is going to be the day where I could make the wrong decision. Or especially if you've had a lawsuit or a board complaint, which if you practice long enough, and sometimes if you practice for five minutes, you're going to have that because it's unfortunately the world we live in. But so many of those are due to maybe a lack of communication um, about something that happens versus what actually happens, as I figured out the it, hard way. Exa- <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it, it, exactly. And, you know, that story kind of reminds me when I was um, talking to an emergency room physician who deals with a lot of the same things that mm-hmm. you guys kind of do because it's mm-hmm. like, are you making the right decision or not? And I think those situations, like, you're always going to have some, like, you know, carryover and all that stuff. Yeah. But... He, he outlined it pretty clear is like, I know I'm going to have this. So I just have to define my process and try and create at least a little bit of boundaries around this. So for yeah. him, it was, you know, afterwards on this stressful day, I'm going to talk to someone about it. And then on my drive home, I'm going to think about it and I'm going to try and process it. And maybe I have a conversation on the phone. Maybe it's just me, but like, the moment I walk in the door from that drive home, I'm on, that's my signal, my sign that like, okay, I thought about it long enough. I'm going to try and at least move on to the next thing to focus on, which is dinner or lunch or whatever, whatever it was to like create that natural barrier where it's like, okay, it's time to like move on to the next phase and let that one go a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true and very difficult to do in some situations, but probably even more important in those situations. Um, so before uh, before we go, I wanted to just touch on psychological safety for a minute, a huge topic. We're talking about it a lot now in veterinary medicine, which I really love. Um, there are some really fantastic voices within vet med who are talking about psychological safety, um, but I, still, I think it's still maybe a slightly unfamiliar term to a lot of people. So would you mind just giving your idea of what psychological safety means? Yeah, absolutely. So psychological safety is essentially uh, the ability to voice your thoughts and opinions and all that good stuff without like an overwhelming fear of like punishment. Yeah. Meaning you can express yourself, who you are, you're playing, you all use the athletic analogy, you're playing out of a place of kind of, love and growth instead of fear and punishment. And in the workplace, what often happens is we create these environments that are more kind of like fear of failure, fear of making a mistake environments where if you like, you know, express yourself in the wrong way or admit the wrong thing, then you're going to kind of be punished or, you know, beaten down a little bit. And what psychological safety is all about is creating that environment where it's about growth and development, where you feel like you can express opinions, even if they run counter or express ideas that, you know, again, might run counter and not be in a place of fear or punishment. Yeah, and that is also ringing a lot of bells in my head about places I've worked where I had no psychological safety (laughs) and places where I felt like I could say, you know, I made a mistake. I don't know what to do. Or, you know, I don't, I'm stuck in this situation. I have too much going on and I feel overwhelmed. I was, did not feel psychologically safe in that environment at the beginning when we talked about where I was 
overwhelmed and said so and was basically told to keep that to myself. Mm. Um, but I think the difference in those environments, too, was me in a big way, because I got to a point where I was going to say it no matter where I was or the consequences, because I had been supported maybe in my personal life enough. Um, and so that, that brings the question, you know, how much of this, how much of the toughness as you define it in this book um, is personal and something you can develop personally and how much is dependent on your environment? You know, I wish I had the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but here's, <laughs> Then you would here's, never need to write another book. <laughs> exactly. Here's what I'll tell you. It depends on both, but both can improve. Mm. So the environment is, is crucial. It, it allows you to be in a place where you can do these things. It supports that. It creates that foundation for things. So, of course, like try to craft the right environment. But if you find yourself in the wrong environment, and sometimes we're just stuck there, that doesn't mean you're doomed. The personal side also matters. And the nice thing is the personal side has, you know, whether you see yourself as tough or not, research data experience all shows that we can all get infinitely better. Hmm. And I think that is the message maybe of hope is that look at both sides and look at, well, where's the room for growth in this? And often it's in both, both places, but sometimes we feel a little trapped in one or the other. Well, that means develop it in this other situation until maybe your environment or whatever changes. The other thing that I'd say as well is that our environment doesn't just mean in the workplace, as you illustrated there. If you feel kind of trapped in your workplace, well, develop something outside of that. Your friend support group, your family support group, those who you can lean on and have your back and have your and like have your back no matter what, because that's going to make you a little bit more secure. Even if you enter an environment that is like not safe, that is yeah. very threatening, that is very fear, fear or whatever based, like if you have that outside of your world, then you're going to be able to handle it and tackle it better. So I think the, the takeaway message is it's a little bit of everything, but the great thing is that all of it is improvable and all of it you can have an impact on if you take the time to to do so that is a message of hope and really important and i should just say from personal experience your community can be online too like if you if you have a supportive online community they can be there for you even if you aren't fortunate enough to have a lot of friends and family that you can depend on, um, at least in person nearby, um, because the, the Uncharted community really supported me when I was having a tough time. And um, AHA has its own community now. Um, and so you can connect with people that way, where um, maybe you, you wouldn't be able to do that in person, or if you're introverted and just don't you're not like a joiner. You, know, you don't have to be <laughs> joining like a volleyball club on the weekends to have to have people you can lean on. So that's an important thing I've discovered for sure. Um, but you have to kind of put yourself out there a little bit um, either way. And it's so worth it. Um, so last question. We on this podcast like to think a lot about different members of the veterinary team because you know we have veterinarians we have veterinary technicians and assistants and then we have client care representatives and everybody feels like they have a slightly different um, level of control in their environment and I would say having worked in 
pretty much all those positions, I felt very little control when I worked, say, behind the reception desk um, at a vet clinic. And I, I was just wondering, in your opinion, how much of the psychological safety in a workplace depends on leadership? And can people lead from within if it doesn't feel like that's the culture where they are right now? So the again, the nuanced answer is that leadership often comes from the top, but it can also come from the middle or bottom up. So you can have an influence. If you have horrible re- leadership, are you going to change it as the receptionist? No. And like, you can still shift and change things. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think, I think there it is, it's a little tricky and difficult. And I don't have any great answers for you, but one of the things I remember a uh, former NFL general manager who actually taught a class that I was in in grad school always communicated this is he said, make sure that people have a role and that they feel like they are contributing no matter what they were doing. So he always told me, and this might be a top-down leadership thing, but I think it's a really important message is he said, the Super Bowl winning team, the time we won the Super Bowl, everybody in that building felt like they were contributing to that win, even the the receptionist. And he said often it was, you know, it was my job to make sure that the kind of guys who were just barely on the team and never got into the game understood their role and understood how it was vital and that they were serving like a vital role in practice to prepare maybe the starters who who got out and got the you know the limelight but they wouldn't be prepared with those without those guys who you know were there in practice and never saw it in the game so maybe that's a message message if you're in some leadership role is well how are these how is everybody on your team serving an important role and how can you create that environment where they know and understand it because the reality in a in a vet world is like yes you might be the receptionist but you play the central communication role between the clinic and the people who are needing help and providing service and if you don't serve that role like the clinic isn't going to succeed and the, yeah. the the like environment the inviting environment of like the you know the the people coming into it won't be there so every single purpose from you know the top to the bottom serves a, a vital piece and i think it's on the leadership to like outline that emphasize it and create that that culture where everyone understands it For sure. And this is something that um, people who maybe don't see themselves as leaders, but might have a different role in the practice can acknowledge the role that others play, even if the top, top leadership isn't doing it. So like you're an associate veterinarian, you, you know, you see your appointments, but you don't necessarily make the culture what it is. But you can contribute by understanding and acknowledging out loud the role that everybody in the practice plays towards towards a successful day. Exactly. And if I might add one more thing that came into my mind is um, several years ago, there was this wonderful study that looked at um, cadets in the Naval Academy. And they wanted to see uh, when you join the Naval Academy, you're essentially stuck in squadrons for the next four years until you graduate. And they wanted to see what made a good squadron. You know, what were the squadrons that improved on all these athletic and academic, you know, measures that they track every year. And 
their assumption going into the study was, oh, it'll be the like the kind of captain, the leader of the squadron, the best performer. But what they found is it was actually the opposite. The least, like the worst performer in the squadron determined how everybody else improved. Meaning if the lowest performer coming in improved a lot, everybody else improved a lot. Huh. It, and the reason for that is they they again speculated is that you look you looked at the the lowest performing performer and if everybody everybody knew like hey they were the slowest or maybe not as strong as everybody else but if you looked over there and you saw that person working hard you saw you thought oh okay like well i'm better than them in terms of performance so <laughs> i better i better at least be working as hard if not harder than them <laughs> So it kind of went up the chain. And I think that, again, was a wonderful example of, like, even if we might feel like, oh, like, we're down on the totem pole, often we can kind of push that culture up by the effort that we're giving, which then resonates and carries throughout the rest of, uh, rest of the team. That is so true. And I've seen it myself. And that is a spectacular way to close because um, I don't think there's any better kind of mic drop than that, which is, you know, um, we can lift each other up just by caring and working really hard at our jobs, whatever they may be. Um, And that's definitely true within a vet clinic. Um, So, uh, Steve, thank you so much for all this time. Um, where can people reach you? I know there are going to be people who want to learn more about you and hear more from you, um, as well as checking out the book, of course, which we'll link in the show notes. But where can they find you online? Yeah, so on any social media, it's at Steve Magnus. And then you can check out all my work on my website, uh, www.stevemagnus.com. And uh, I'm a fan of the Growth Equation podcast, so um, people should definitely check that out, too, if they want to hear more from you. Here's the book. Um, I'm a bookmark person. (laughs) I love it. This is why we've gone for an hour, because I didn't even come close to asking you all the questions I could have asked you. But um, I really appreciate it. This has been so much fun, and um, I know... People will, you'll give people a lot to think about. Um, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts, um, people who are listening and watching. So please email me at podcast at aha.org. Um, let me know what you think. And um, if you've checked out the book, I'd love to hear what you think about that too. Um, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.